Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. I am your host, Craig Hanks, here with another Author Shelf episode. For those of you who are newcomers, the Author Shelf is where we invite an author to come on and talk about something off of their shelf that is not their book. Uh, so it's like book clubbing with an author, in a way, I suppose. <laughs> and today's episode, uh, we're joined by Vaishnavi Patel. Uh, and she and I are going to be discussing a 2008 novel, The Palace of Illusions by Chitra uh, Divakaruni. I'm working. Okay. In case it wasn't clear yet, just based on my pronunciations, this could be a rough one for me, <laughs> but we're going to soldier on through my ignorance uh, and uh, see what we can do. So, Vaishnavi, welcome to the Legendarium. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're doing great on pronunciations. Yes, that's what I like to hear. Well, yeah, it's it's not going to last. Okay. It's, it's the, just the not. Mahabharata pronunciations are like, even I struggle. Like, I'll talk <laughs> about it and then my mom will make fun of me. So, you know. Perfect. I okay, just will so, send her the episode. And we'll I, all okay, there. good. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I, I don't want her to hate me. So that's, that's probably for the best. Um, anyway, before we uh, get started on all that, I will tell people that we are going to talk about your new book, Vaishnavi, and that is a novel called Kaiki. Um, it's your debut book that came out last year. It's getting a paperback issue this year. Um, and uh, let's let's just say it generated some buzz. Okay, so we'll talk more about that at the end of the episode. Um, but for now, I'll just remind everybody to go to thelegendarium.com for our past episodes sorted by author or with all the author shelf episodes together in one place. So you can see what episode numbers those are, that sort of thing. It also has links to the Patreon and Discord communities and a calendar. So if you want to know what we're going to be reading coming up and you want to read along with us, you can find that all at thelegendarium.com. All right. So the book is called The Palace of Illusions. Like I said, this was a 2008 novel uh, and it's kind of a, a retelling from a different perspective of a, a foundational text in Indian culture, if I understand correctly. Mm -hmm. um, and that text is called, uh, what, what was it called? The Mahabharata? Yeah, the Mahabharata or the Mahabharata. Um, whether you pronounce the A at the end just depends on region. So you're uh, good either way. Yeah. It's a, it, as a side note, um, one of the things that's always fascinated me about uh, about India or the subcontinent generally is kind of like with England or with Britain generally, there are a shocking number of accents and dialects. And yes. as a linguist by training, it just fascinates me to no end to see how things can change from not just from one region to the next, but from one village to the next or one city to the next. It's amazing. It's it's amazing. Um, my parents grew up in the same state, but their families speak different languages, which yeah. is like, imagine if, you know, you grew up in Illinois and your parents both grew up in Illinois and their families like do not speak the same language. Yeah. That'd be yeah, a little a, shocking. Oh, you're from Carthage. I'm from Chicago yeah. and never the ne twain shall meet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, okay, let me ask you the first question that I ask every author, and then we'll get into some of, you know, maybe maybe we'll do some recap of the what the story is about and all of that. But let me just ask you straight up uh, why you chose this book, and, and then we'll get more into it. Yeah, so I mean, this book has a special place in my heart for a lot of reasons. So Jitra Banerjee Devakarani is like one of the sort of foundational, like Indian American authors. I actually... I think the first book I ever picked up by her was The Conch Bearer when I was like a kid, which is this like middle grade book that she wrote. Um, but I picked this up in high school. So a couple of years after it came out and I was just like shocked. Like, I think I just sat there and read the whole thing in one go to be like, oh my God, a book about the Mahabharata like in my high school library. Like what is going on here? Um, it was just the most like exhilarating experience ever to to get that and to get that from Draupadi's perspective of all people who is like just sort of tossed around in the Mahabharata and doesn't really um, get not like justice, but doesn't get a say in what is going on, at least not in the you know dinner table version that you're hearing. Um, right. So that was just like such an amazing experience for me. Um, but I have like a weird connection to this book, which is that I um, am a classically trained Indian dancer 
And in college and afterwards, I was a semi-professional dancer. So I, in addition to my job, did a lot of paid gigs on the side and like was in a company um, and doing a lot of like professional performances. And we did a performance of basically the Palace of Illusions in dance form, which was this like two hour long, like Palace of Illusions show. And that was like so amazing and fun and special to be like, I read this book and it was life changing. And then I get to be in a dance drama about it. Um, And so that has just been like a foundational book in my mind forever. I'm sure that especially the dance experience after that would just cement that in your own personal mythology of how your life and your mind developed. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh yeah. I've got some of those in my past as well. Um, Oh, what was I now? This, as as we've been saying, is kind of a retelling of the Mahabharat, as you're saying. Um, Do you want to kind of just walk us through the the bare bones, what people might want to know about this story for the purposes of this discussion? Yeah. So the Mahabharat, I have learned, is impossible to recap in like any (laughs) meaningful way. (laughs) I've learned this because I'm currently working on a Mahabharat retelling myself that's oh, like wow. tells a very different portion of the story than Palace of Illusions, but it's like I'm like trying to write a family tree and it's impossible. Mm. But at its core, the Mahabharat translates to Great War or like Great War of India. And it's about a war between five brothers on one side and a hundred brothers on the other side, and these two groups are cousins. And they're fighting for the control of the kingdom and basically all of India, because all of the kingdoms of India have either sworn fealty to one side or the other, which culminates in this huge war in which almost all the men of the country are wiped out. Um, And ultimately, the five brothers win and they like go back to rule. Um, The Mahabharata is a foundational text in part because it's like every part of India is involved and it touches on all of these different aspects of life. And it has, you know, deceit and trickery and gambling and disguises and like epic hunts and warfare, but also because on the first day of the war, um, the one of the five brothers hesitates. He's like, how can I go out and fight my family? And Krishna, who is one of the major gods of the Indian pantheon, gives him this whole speech about why he has to go out there and do his duty and why sometimes, you know, you have to make a decision between multiple bad choices, but you still have to pick the righteous choice. Mm. And that speech is the Bhagavad Gita, which is the holiest book in the Indian, in the Hindu canon. So within the Mahabharata, you have the Bhagavad Gita, Um, And that is sort of why the Mahabharata has such a huge importance in the Indian canon and the Hindu canon, because within it is this holy book. And And, so Palace of Illusions... Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say Palace of Illusions fits in because it's Draupadi's story. And Draupadi is the wife to all five of the winning, victorious, righteous brothers. Oh, she knows how to work it. Yes. (laughs) It's uh, And this is told from her perspective. As you say, it takes her from... Uh, maybe not the background so much as just a, a not um, she she doesn't have full agency. Maybe yes. is what you're saying in the story as it's traditionally told. Uh, whereas in this one, she is the mover and shaker of her own life. Um, and so this is essentially a, a feminist retelling of the Mahabharat. Yeah, uh, say that five times fast. I know what you know what. <laughs> If I did, I think uh, I, I think I'd get canceled because I'd fail so hard. <laughs> um, now, I want to ask you about this, and again, we're going to get to your book uh, in a little while. But you also did something similar with another uh, kind of foundational text where you did a, a retelling, and so you would know about this question, which is kind of how how much guts intestinal fortitude it would take to rewrite a traditional story like this in such a way that kind of inverts some of the original text right how how much does she change and how much you know what what kind of guts would that take in your mind i mean 
I can't imagine Chitra Banerjee Devakarani sitting down with her publisher in 2007, like the year before it's published, and being like, so I'm going to publish a feminist myth retelling of the Mahabharata. Like, that is just shocking and so gutsy to me because this is well before we've got our current, like, crop of feminist myth retellings as sort Mm. of a publishing trend, right? Like, this is, she just wanted to do it and she went for it. Um, So I think that's, like, pretty incredible. And then to do so and and say, I'm going to tell it from Draupadi's perspective, I mean, Draupadi is a heroine, so I think people could have been on board but like she does take some liberties and especially, you know, Draupadi's relationship with Garna, which is mm. a complex part of the Mahabharata and has a very definite spin on it here. Um, like I imagine it took, it took a lot of guts. Uh, so I have a lot of respect for her for, for doing that and also for paving the way for somebody like me to be able to do that like <laughs> 14 years later. So when you you approach your publisher and say, "Here's what I'm, here's what I've got, here's my manuscript," she did it first, so oh, I'm Palace allowed. Oh, Palace of Illusions was like totally a comp title. I was, <laughs> I was like, this book is don't expect me to write like her. Like she's a genius, and I simply cannot. But like, she did it. I, I'm telling you, it can be done. Yeah, yeah. It. it I'm I'm curious about uh, because I don't know. I I just finished the book earlier today. I'm not uh, well familiar with the history of its publishing. But do you know how successful it was, or was it it's when it came out? Was it big? Successful. Yeah. Um, so I mean, she's a very successful author, right? She wrote like uh, Mistress of Spices. Uh, which like got a movie and stuff um, and a couple of other like very popular books. Um, so she, she's like a, an established entity at the time she writes this book. But I think this book was like possibly one of her most successful. Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly, it was extremely, extremely successful in India. Um, it's like sold like hundreds of thousands of copies in India. So it wasn't like, controversial in a way that I think he has been a little more controversial both because of its subject matter and because of the like climate today but um it did it did sell a lot in India um which I'm very happy about because I think there are like you know I get my cousins to like bring me suitcases of books whenever they come to America. Um, So like there's plenty of retellings in India of the various epics, obviously because they're like our epics, but a lot of them are like a grim, dark retelling of the Mahabharata from the perspective of the same men or like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a 10 book series on the Ramayana from the men. Um, And so it was, I think, even in India, like a little groundbreaking to get this perspective. And probably pretty ripe at that point for that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm I'm trying to place it for for those of our listeners who are not steeped in Indian mythology and folklore and all of that stuff. Um, what what would we compare this to? And I was kind of thinking about this and I wanted to bounce this idea off of you. You know, we have texts like the Iliad and the Odyssey um, that are really uh, well known to a certain extent, uh, and then, but but the one that this kind of pinged uh, uh, in my brain was the Aeneid, which tells of the story of the founding of Rome. It's this epic poem about the founding of Rome and and the two brothers and and the the wars and all that stuff. But while I think the comparison is probably apt. The difference might be, and this is where you come in, you tell me if if this is true, people don't really know the story of the Aeneid unless you kind of took some literature courses in college and you you know you really care about this unless stuff. Unless you were a Latin student in high school. E- exactly, exactly. You're, you might not like know, like you book. say the Aeneid, and you're like, yeah, I've heard that before, but I, I don't really know what it's about. I read about. it in Latin for Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you really? Oh yes, that's it. Oh man, you have you have your target audience right here. Oh, absolutely. But my my question would be, where does the Mahabharat live on that spectrum of like? Does everybody know this story inside and out, or is it more like an Aeneid where you kind of have to be steeped in it? Um, 
so the Mahabharat is is like the size of the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and then some. Mm. Um, and so I think the answer is like, it depends. So some parts are more well known. Like, I would say the actual like war portion and some of the major events leading up to the war are probably well known to the extent of like the Odyssey and the Iliad. Mm. But then there's like, you know, prehistory of it that's in the actual Mahabharata, but that mm-hmm. people like completely forget is in there and have no idea. And that to me is, or even the ending of the Mahabharata where they all die and go to various levels of hell, um, which is like very dark, uh, is also not very well known. And so I think that um, it, it's almost like if you if you took the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid as like a continuous story, which right. it's not, but like it it does tell one narrative, but which which you should do, yeah. right? It wasn't written that way, but you should take it that way. Yes, I. Uh. Uh, if you did that, it would be like some parts are as well known as the Odyssey, which is probably the most well known. Mm-hmm. Some parts are as well known as the Iliad, which is like pretty well known, but people probably aren't going to know all the details. And then some parts are about as well known as the Aeneid, which is to say you have to be a real epic nerd to like <laughs> know what's in it. And and uh, the I say parts... that with love because oh, no, as I, I just hey. revealed I have read it. In <laughs> it's uh, what I'll tell you a quick story uh, so that you'll have company uh, in your your nerdery. Uh, my final semester of college, I had to I I had done four years, and then my advisor was like, "Yeah, you're missing this three credit hour course to graduate." And I'm like, "Oh gosh," and so. I, so I was like, okay, I'll do one more semester of school, I guess. And so I took that one course and then I'm like, what, what am I going to fill out my time with? I'm a full-time student. So I need this many credit hours to qualify as a full-time student. And I said, oh, I've only got one more semester left to take Latin. So I took Latin 111, which was 101 and 102 combined into one semester. And my, my skate semester it was supposed to be the easiest thing. I oh, just man. need one more course. I that was the hardest semester of my life and I don't regret a second of it because it's it like so learning valuable. all the declensions and like every single thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was Jeez. brutal. Uh, and I I would come home. I was already married at the time uh, by the end of college. I would come home and my wife was like, "How was school?" And I'm exhausted and you know, I've got like bags under my eyes and I'm like, "Latin was amazing. I loved it." <laughs> She's like, "Yeah, I that's, can tell." That, that's how Latin feels. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the semester where we read Julius Caesar. Then I was just like Julius. Yeah, it's uh, that that could get together. a little Yeah, that could get a little rough. So, okay, back to Palace of Illusions. Uh, the the Palace of Illusions refers to a section of the Mahabharata, uh, mm-hmm. which is when our heroine who uh, you called her Drapadi, yeah. uh, but she, in the book she's more constantly referred to as Panchali, right? Yes. Um Means and the same so thing. I mean, like, right. they're all, she has a million names. She has a million names. She's also at, called, like, Krishna. Oh, um, we're going to get to, we're going to get to Krishna because yeah. I, I love, well, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, we'll, we'll see what we can get through. But, um, but her, it deals with her birth and her childhood, her upbringing. And then the Palace of Illusions is the palace that she has made. Um, that is exactly that. It's kind of this magical palace with, well, lots of, lots of illusions around, right? Um, are those well-known parts of the story? Or is she uh, mining something a little lesser known? That, I would say, is less well-known. Like, people know about Indraprastha and that they build this palace in the desert and they turn this sort of, like, terrible land into this beautiful place. Um, and people sometimes know about the yagna where, you know, the whole... Thing with Shishupala goes down. I don't know why I'm trying to like avoid spoiling this epic that like <laughs> is millennia old, but I'll be a little vague. Um, but <laughs> but people people like kind of know it exists, but that's like a section of the story that's a lot of times when you hear it because a lot of people a lot of people don't read the Mahabharata even like an abridged version. A lot of people hear it growing up and that's about it right like so when your grandma is telling you this story uh you don't want to hear at like 
seven years old about how they like built this palace and this palace had these mirrors and whatever. Like you want to hear about them shooting at each other. So uh, we skip over that a lot. And so it often is like a footnote, like they built this palace and Duryodhan got very jealous. And so he invited them for a game of dice and it gets like, that's sort of how it fits into the story. And so it's, it's extremely glossed over for a lot of people. Um, And I think that's one of the like, beautiful elements of this story is the way that you linger there and you see the way it mattered and you also see why Duryodhan cares so much um which is like in the story but uh is not often like told I think you're muted I think you're right. My gosh, I had I have jets. I live right next to an air force base, and so when the jets no, are flying over, I uh, I mute myself. Um, well, I might edit that. I might not. Who cares? Our <laughs> listeners are used to my sub subpar audio. <laughs> so, uh, no, I was going to ask you. Um, I was going to ask you something. Oh no, just up about mining a lesser known part of the story seems like a really effective way to for her to tell her own story uh, in this novel because she's able to, I imagine, get away with a little more, you know, liberty in her storytelling because she's not going to get people going, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the way I heard it over my kitchen table growing up. Right. Uh, Exactly. And and so, yeah, so it's an interesting way to do it, but it also, it also allows her, as I understand it, to focus on this character on, uh, on uh, Drapadi in a way that she couldn't if she was concentrating on other parts of the story where Drapali is is kind of in the background a little bit more, right? So this is how she's going to bring her to the fore. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, something that's hard about Draupadi's story and that Palace of Illusions tackles really well is that in the Mahabharata, if you're just hitting the, you know, greatest highlights, her life really sucks. Like, she thinks she's going to marry Arjun and then she has to marry all five of these brothers. She thinks that they're going to be kings and they get sent into the desert. The moment that things go well for them, it all gets gambled away. She gets humiliated and, you know, they attempt to strip her in front of a hall full of men. Then they get sent into exile. They have to run around for years. They get chased and then they go to war And then after her husband's win, they're kind of like kings of ashes. And then her kid dies or is like destined to die. And then she's, they all like go travel to their deaths. And she's the first one to die because she loved Arjun more than the rest. The Mm. one that she was supposed to marry. It's just like a really, like people don't really go out there naming their kids Dropadi. Like you don't want that kind of, <laughs> even though she's the heroine of the story, right? Like if you, if you pick somebody for that slot, it's her. Like you don't want to have her life. Um, and I think what lingering in some of these parts that the Mahabharata's greatest hits don't focus on allows you to do is to see her as more than just somebody who is torn from circumstance to circumstance and bears it gracefully and that is her defining characteristic that Mm. she's just able to like take this suffering and like move forward which is an admirable quality and she certainly has that but that she gets to be more than that and to to have and do more than that i if somebody asked me based on this novel what is draupadi's uh defining characteristic i would say anger her defining emotion she's angry all the time uh but as the novel takes pains to make clear, this is not an unjustified anger. <laughs> She's yeah. she is getting a raw deal, like you say. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of her life is tied up in fate and prophecies, and, um, and you know, and the question of how much control she really has. And so, it is. Uh, if you're going to call this a feminist retelling of the myth, then that is maybe one aspect. Uh, of feminism that I find admirable is the allowance for anger and yes. just say, no, I'm, I'm not going to be okay with, uh, with my lot in life as determined by these outside forces, you know, whether it be culture or men or, you know, tradition or whatever. Um, and, and 
being allowed to be angry, I think is really important. Um, I, I, and part of that, it, it actually fits into kind of the arc of the story as I understood it. And before I say this, I have to admit, I had very little idea what was going on through the novel. Uh, it, I, I compare it to the first time I read Tolkien's uh, Silmarillion. Um, longtime listeners will be familiar with how I, I talk about this, where the first time I read it, you know, name after name, after event, after family tree, as you say, yeah. all these things are going past you. And it's just enough to make your mind explode if you try to really grok everything about it on the first try. And so I'm about a third of the way through the book and I realized, oh, wait, I need to let go of trying to remember every single character's name or every little event that happens and just kind of let the story wash over me. Um, and a reread will uh, kind of open up doors for me uh, the second time around once I get an understanding of kind of the arc of the story. Mm-hmm. With that being said, the arc of the story, as I understand it, is uh, it's it's very human, uh, it, like universal. Uh, what I mean by that is we have this character, Drapadi, who goes through her youth. It, it tells you about her youth and she's confused and trying to understand her place and what all these prophecies mean. So you have that confusion of youth, the pride of her adulthood, uh, where she thinks she is the master of her fate, you know, and she is going to rule this palace and she's going, you know, uh, it, it's that pride that she has. She moves on into middle age with the regret that can come with that, looking back on her life and, you know, uh, kind of raging against the heavens. Why couldn't things be different? And then finally, the end of the book is her on her deathbed, looking back with acceptance of yeah. these things that happened through her life. And I, as I got to the end of the book, that was my, my overriding feeling was, you know, this can be a feminist retelling of a, uh, of a myth that I don't really know that I've barely ever heard anything about. And yet I'm able to latch on to something in this that is universal, that is human. Uh, does that reading of it track with you? Yeah, it, it definitely does. And I think that's why I love this book so much. It's like, because for me, I mean, on the first read, because I already knew the Mahabharata, I was like sort of following I was like, oh, yeah, Bhishma, like, I know who he is. Um, But at the end of the day, it wasn't, like, reliant on the Mahabharata in order for its story to make sense. It was its own story of this woman's life in this, through these very difficult and awe-inspiring, and I don't mean awe in a good way, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, awe-inspiring trials. And... So I think that's what's so beautiful about it and why I say that, you know, Chitra Banerjee Devakarani is a master is because she can take this character who is different and extraordinary and a linchpin in this epic and also make her story just so human. Um, That's exactly the right word for it. It, With your history with this book. I imagine that all the thoughts that you just shared, you've come to that over, I assume, multiple rereads, the dance that uh, you talked about doing. The, uh, should we call the dance an epic too? Because two hours of dance, that, that's uh, that's impressive. Um, I, so I'm sure that you've taken a long time to come to your feelings, your current feelings about the book. But are you able to cast your mind back to the first time you read it? You know, how old were you? And and what did you get out of it that first time? Why did you fall in love with it so much that very first time? So I was like 14 or 15 when I first read it, like 2010, 2011. Um, and I actually remember connecting very much with how angry the book was at the time. Hmm. I like obviously connecting with the magic of like reading this epic in a novel form um, and from Draupadi's perspective, but then also being like, yeah, like she gets to be actually angry about all these things that are happening to her because in the Mahabharata, she has a few moments where she like calls people out on what's going on. But for a lot of it, she like really is just sort of bearing what's happening and like 
moving through these trials. And so I think that was something I really connected with early on. Um, so in the dance, um, I think that's when I started, I reread the book when we put on this performance, which was when I was like 19 or 20, actually maybe 21. So like several years later, and I reread the book. And as we were, you know, choreographing and practicing and talking about like, what the different scenes and what the different emotions we were trying to cultivate were, I think I really started connecting to all of these other emotions and to the emotional arc of the book of, you know, like the power and like sort of rawness of the, um, the her birth from the fire mm. and sort of what we're conveying there versus what we're conveying at the time of her wedding and like the sort of more like soft emotions and, and love and a little bit of confusion and fear, but also this like uh, blossoming and then her time in the palace and what that looked like. And then the war and the like fear and terror and, you know, anger is maybe uh, an emotion there, but it's not the primary emotion, right? Like there she has so many regrets about what's mm -hmm. happened and what is to come. And then, you know, finally the ending where it is this like sense of like, peace and shanti which means peace but it kind of has a different like connotation um and like conveying that and i so for me uh dancing that story and having to embody the emotions on the page i think helped me connect to something that my teenage self couldn't fully figure out on the first read yeah it's a bit like um uh, a community theater actor or something who does shakespeare where, yeah, you read it in high school. Uh, yeah, we did Hamlet or, you know, we did whatever, whatever, Romeo and Juliet. But then you're asked to perform that story and you have to dig in. You have to figure out what the heck Shakespeare was trying to say and what these characters are thinking and what they're going through. And so that, um, you know, performing a story just necessarily gives you a different perspective on on a book or a story, right? Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the perspective in this book, because this was an aspect I found really interesting. Um, it's written in first person, so you're not just following this character, you're, uh, ooh, I was going to say embodying this character, but it is a little bit different. Um, if, for longtime listeners, they'll remember we did um, the fifth season, N.K. Jemison's fifth season, have you read it, by the way? Incredible book. Oh, it's uh, it's uh, unreal, that, especially that first book. Talk in the about trilogy. a book where the first read through you have to just like let go and be like, <laughs> <laughs> "I'll figure it out later." I'll figure it out later. Yeah, exactly. But what she I, I talked about in that book, the there are three different perspectives, and the one where she gives you second person is first of all very jarring. We're not used to reading in second person, yeah. but second person forces you to inhabit a character. Uh, yes. character's mind uh, in a really effective way. We don't have that here. However, uh, I had similar thoughts about this because it was in first person where we are, uh, we're, we're not allowed to keep our distance as much as we would with third person. Uh, how is this similarly effective for you? And how do you like to write when you're thinking about perspective and, and forcing the reader into this or that mindset? So I think it's it's very effective and it actually mirrors the way that the Mahabharata is told, which is that the Mahabharata itself, so Vyas, uh, V-Y-A-S-A, um, is a character, like he's referenced a lot in Palace of Illusions. And in the Mahabharata, like there is the framing story is like he is narrating this, right? Mm. So like he's saying like, this is what I saw, this is what we saw this is what is happening on the battlefield. And now let me tell you some context from back then. And that's kind of the, the way that she manages to craft the story, even though it's one perspective following one character, she still has, sometimes you're actually in Draupadi's head. Sometimes Draupadi is narrating another relevant story to you. Like sometimes you're in those layers of it, um, which I found very effective and very much like the original. Um, but I think you get to be a lot closer to her because most of the Mahabharata is in third person narration because Vyasa is telling you like, and then 
you know, Arjun. Right. That was just the frame story, yes. but the, but the actual narrative is mostly right. third person. Right. Um, and so you get to be a lot closer to her and you get to feel what she feels. And I, for me, that was incredibly effective. Like I said, I really was connecting to at least some elements of her emotional um, journey, but I think that like first person is very effective for that generally. Um, and I think there's a, I think a lot of, sorry, I was just like thinking back. I think a lot of the like myth retellings that I've read are actually in first person, including mm -hmm. Gaiki. Um, and I think part of the reason is because when you're retelling a story from a point of view that isn't in the original, what you're really, you've seen what the character, like what happens to the character. So you kind of know the third person version. If somebody just like was observing and was telling you like, oh, and then this happened to this person, then this mm. happened to this person. What, what really gets brought out in a lot of these narratives is what was happening in their head. Like, what were they thinking? Why did they do what they did when, you know, Duryodhan was disrobing her like what was she thinking what was she feeling mm. like we can imagine it in the original but now we actually know and so I think that's why first person is really effective for these kinds of stories in particular because that that is the element that's missing versus like when you're following Arjun in the Mahabharata you're just getting so much of him talking and talking to other characters and monologuing and you're actually often getting told how he feels that like you don't truly need that like first person perspective as much mm. to understand the inner life yeah it's a bit like um watching a movie and then go uh, going and reading the uh novel either yeah. the original novel or the novelization of a movie script where yeah they get to delve into more detail uh <laughs> and you know i think there is actually a, there's an argument to be made both ways where somebody could legitimately say you know i preferred if a story just tells me what happened or what somebody said and then i get to mm -hmm. make my own interpretations of of what they were thinking i think that's totally valid uh but as you say this gives the author a chance to kind of insert what they want for the character uh, you know what their vision is um and not just strictly leave it up to the reader in every instance yeah as a reader i think i'm a solid mix of like third and first person like i really like reading both I think that first person works well for like this particular narrative a lot of times because of what you already know from the epic. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you a, a final, I don't know about final, but close to final question, which is um, I i remember, I, I'm going to compare this to the Silmarillion again because, hey, you know what? I know what I know. Uh, <laughs> and I'm a Tolkien guy. Um but I remember reading the Silmarillion when I was 17 and having no idea what was going on and not really understanding it. But in reading it, this kind of, it, it gave me touch points for my research. It, uh, like my mind was blown wide open. I wanted to know everything I could about not just Middle Earth, but Tolkien himself and the epics that he based his stories on. And uh, it, it, it led to kind of an intellectual explosion on my part that uh, I'm still kind of reeling from today. Reading this story felt actually a little bit similar to that. I, I don't know that, uh, that I'm going to go become a scholar on uh, Indian history or mythology or anything like that, but it gave me some touch point names and places and histories and ideas so that I could say at the end of this book, like if you asked me to recap everything that could happen, I'd be completely lost, even just with the novel, you know, yeah. forget the Mahabharat. Um, yeah. But it gave me a few things to go and say, oh, you know what? I want to learn more about this character or the Palace of Illusions or the big giant million man battle at the end where everybody <laughs> dies. I want to learn more about that. Is this in your mind, a good place to start on something like that to ignite imagination? Or are there even better places for somebody to go if they're if if they want to get interested in this type of, uh, you know, kind of Indian literature and history? Yeah, this is a great starting point. I mean, uh, the Mahabharata, I find to be pretty inaccessible in terms of like, the the entirety of it like you are mm. going to it's 
it's like tens of thousands of pages, right? So you're going to have to find uh, an abridged version somehow. Now you can choose to read an abridged translation, but you can also choose to read a retelling or an adaptation like this. And I honestly feel like all of those are pretty valid ways to learn about the story and the major players and the the war and the time period and like the importance of what was going on. And then from there you can like go and learn everything you want to learn about Garna or Krishna, the two best characters, obviously, um, <laughs> or anybody else, I guess. Like, I don't know why you would, but go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's like a great starting point. Um, I definitely think so. And then if you want to learn more about the Indian epics, I mean, there's the Mahabharat and there's the Ramayan, which is shorter. But like when I say shorter, it's like 2000 pages. So you could still also like find a good um, abridged version of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But between the two, I'd say the Ramayana and the Mahabharata sort of like form the core of the like mythos. And um, they're the seventh and the eighth incarnations of Vishnu, Ram and Krishna, respectively. So they're also like a very historical uh, or like historical in air quotes and <laughs> sure. um, religious like touch point. Like, yeah. I, like, I'm not saying everything in the Ramayana and the Mahabharata actually happened, but, like, there is archaeological record that, like, some of the stuff happened, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a bit like uh, reading King Arthur stories where it's like, right. yeah, okay, that didn't happen, but there was this dude. Yeah. Um, okay, interesting, interesting. Um, <laughs> I, I'll be honest, I may dig into some of this stuff, um, and I, I want to talk more uh, about the other one that you talked about. What, what would you say the, the name of the other, the Ramayana? Yeah, the Ramayan. So actually, my okay. book is a retelling of the Ramayan. Um, exactly. The story of Ram. So while Krishna is, he's not a side character, but he's not like the main character in the Mahabharata. Ram is the main character of the Ramayan. Um, and so that's also like a religious and historical text. Um, but it's a much more contained story where it's just sort of following Ram, I guess, like his parents, and then him and his story, uh, versus the Mahabharata, which starts like ten generations back, and mm. stuff that happens in the war is affected by who said what to who, like in their great 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 grandparents' generation. So. <laughs> and yeah, we haven't even talked about uh, many of the other characters, but Krishna is a really fun character in this book, in part just because he's not always fun. You don't know. You don't know what he's gonna... doing there, what what his plans are, and um, and we haven't even talked about Krishna versus Krishna, uh, yeah. which is another name that she has, and and there are some interesting cans of worms that we could open up with that name that she's given. And, um, but anyway, but but we should probably start the process of wrapping this up. So I'm going to ask you before we get to your book uh, and getting a little bit more about that, uh, any final thoughts? Uh, anything you want to leave listeners with as far as why they should read Palace of Illusions uh, or what you love so much about it? I don't know. I feel like I've, I feel like I've covered it all and gushed Good. a lot about <laughs> the book. Um, so yeah, I love it. You should pick it up and you really, you don't need to know the Mahabharata. Like you can read it as a complete, like not knowing anything about the epic and you will still like feel emotions, strong yeah. emotions reading this book, which yeah. is what we read for. So. And and that's, I, I will echo that uh, kind of, I've already mentioned this, but I know that I will need a reread to actually understand kind of everything that's going on. And yet I'm, I'm still affected by it, even just one time through barely understanding it and not keeping track of the names. Like you asked me who the, who the five brothers are and what their names are. Not a chance. Um, but Come on a reread, so maybe easy. I would. <laughs> it's so Yudhishthir easy. Yudhishthir Bheem, Arjun, Nakul, and Sahadev. Oh, well, Come I on, mean, <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day. Anyway, but I did thoroughly enjoy my time with it, and I hope other people go pick it up uh, because it's a lot of fun. But before they do, they should buy your book, obviously. They should yes. buy your book. You so, should buy them together. They actually pair very well together. Hey, there you go. Yeah. I mean, you said before that this, that Palace of Illusions is what you call a, a comp book. So when you mm -hmm. send something to a potential publisher, you're saying, oh, you know, this, this is comparable to this or that or the other. Yeah. Um, and so yours is in some way comparable to this. Um, and I, I will put a link 
in the uh, description below so people can go check that out. Um, but the book is called Kaiki. Yes. Uh, pronounce it for me. It's Kaiki, so you're getting it right. Oh, okay, I'm pretty close. My K's are a little too far forward. Uh, they're not quite glottal enough. I, I'll get there. I'll get there. I, I have to admit, I don't know what you're saying right now. But... <laughs> That's fine. Like, That's fine. Uh, it's That's a very good pronunciation. What, one of my uh, uh, I I love um, the Indian accent in English, uh, which uh, in the audiobook I bounced between the the uh, Kindle and the audiobook on this one, and every time I turn it on, I I just I die over the accent. I love it so much, and part of it is that in English we push all of our vowels into the middle, or sorry, all of our consonants into the middle of our mouth. Uh, whereas in uh, Indian accents, it tends to be at the front or the back, like the extreme front or back of your mouth as you're pronouncing consonants. That's um, very true. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and uh, I, I find it endlessly charming and wonderful. So yeah, my my poor husband like really struggles to pronounce names sometimes. <laughs> well, he's he not in the same boat then. <laughs> and and oh. we'll be like repeating words back and forth to each other, and I'll be like, "What are you not getting?" Like. I said it seven times. Yeah, like, exactly. Surely now you should understand. <laughs> Open your ears. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry. I'm getting a sidetrack. Tell us about your book. <laughs> yeah. So Kaike is a feminist retelling of the epic, the Ramayan, which tells the story of Ram, a prince who is exiled from his kingdom and goes on a 14 year journey to save his wife. Kaike is his kind of evil stepmother, who is the one who exiles him at the beginning of the story. So Kaike tells her story from childhood all the way up through her decision to exile Ram and kind of explains why she might have done that in a way that goes beyond what the epic says, which is that she was jealous. So is, it, is this uh, kind of an uh, apologetic text for her, uh, kind of in the in the vein of uh, there there have been a spate of these over the last decade or so, where you have something like Wicked, the, that musical, or uh, what was it, Maleficent, or yeah. you know, a, a story where you take a kind of villainous character and give you a different perspective on them. Is that is that what yours is? Yes and no. So yes, it's more apologetic. Like it it does take the tack that that decision was justified, although it portrays her, in my opinion, as pretty flawed, like I would not want to be friends with her. <laughs> um, but I think it actually, in a way, is like getting back to some of the roots of the story. So like I mentioned with Palace of Illusions, where there's some stuff in the book that's like in the original epic, but people don't know about. Similarly in Kaiki, there's a lot of details I discovered in the original epic that's just not in the like, traditional versions that are told or in like the popular TV serials and whatnot. And so a lot of it is just like adding these layers of detail to the story that make her a lot more justified. But we're actually in the original because the original is a bit ambivalent about whether she's good or bad because she's necessary. She's mm. it, She has to exile Ram for Ram to go on this journey and unite these kingdoms and save his wife and defeat this demon like he has to do that that's his like destiny and so she by exiling him helps a god achieve his destiny so i think the actual original texts are a lot more ambivalent about whether she's good or evil than people are today like a lot mm. of times kaiki gets thrown around as like a term for like mean older women and things like that right like is this is this karen is she karen tell me she's karen kind of like <laughs> like people will like call like you know mean aunties or like even like mean female politicians like mm. geikies um and so it's definitely like no people are not having a positive or even ambivalent opinion of her today mm. but i think the original text is weirdly I discovered as I sort of set out to research this story idea, much more sympathetic. So by naming or by titling the book, Kaiki, you are tapping into not just a character that people would recognize, but an emotion that people have um, and promising them something else by picking up this book. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because that wasn't the original title that I had like sold the book with. Mm. Um, and my editor was like, she, she's also Indian. 
And she was like, the title has to be Geike. Like, don't question me. I'm, I'm positive. <laughs> and I was like, I trust you. Like, great, let's do it. And the number of like reader comments I've gotten that were like, I walked into the bookstore and I saw a book with the title Geikei and I knew I had to buy it because who does that are like so high, too high to count because that really struck with readers who grew mm. up hearing the story. They were like, what is this? This can't be real. And then they would like open the flap and be like, oh my gosh, this actually is a Ramayan retelling. Like this is what it's, what the title is promising. And so it worked out really well. Amazing. Well, people can go check out Kaiki. Uh, it's being sold everywhere right now in paperback. So if you prefer paperback, yes. uh, but uh, I, I'm sure it's everywhere. Books are sold in whatever format you like. Uh, and so go check out, I, I'll put a link to your website, Vaishnavi, in the uh, description below. And so people can go there and find the book, uh, you know, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, whatever. Yep. Uh, they can find it everywhere. And let either of these books ignite your curiosity. If you're not very familiar with these foundational Indian texts, then, you know, let these kind of modern retellings ignite that curiosity and, and make you wonder what you're missing out on. I know I do. <laughs> so, uh, so Vaishnavi, thank you very much for giving us the rundown of your book, but also especially for taking some time to talk about Palace of Illusions um, I, I say this with a lot of authors that come through on the author's shelf series, but in a hundred years, I never would have just picked up this book on my own. I wouldn't have known to, um, it just wasn't on my radar and you put it there and I'm really grateful. It's a, uh, it's a really interesting book and I definitely recommend it to our listeners. So thanks for the, the epic pick one might say. <laughs> thank you for having me and thank you for reading my book obsession. <laughs> <laughs> it's my pleasure. And uh, for everybody else, again, make sure you go to thelegendarium.com for all the stuff I talked about at the beginning of the episode. The thing I'm going to keep hitting because apparently I haven't done it enough lately is talk about the calendar. If you're wondering what we're going to be reading coming up so that you can be ready for the episodes, it's all there. Um, uh, you know, listed out by week. You can see not only when the episodes will release and what they'll be about, but when I'll be doing my YouTube live streams. So you can check all of that out at thelegendarium.com. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening. And thank you, Vaishnavi. And I will see everybody next time. Thanks, Craig. <laughs>